Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Euro Trip and... Recognise the music? Yeah, we're not quite live from Liverpool, but there is a very good reason we're playing that music, because today on the podcast, James, hello, we are looking back at 2023. Yes, hi Rob, hi everyone. Yeah, last week we were looking ahead to 2024 uh, with the news about the BBC and the UK and their potential new selection process. Whereas this week, we're going to be looking back at 2023 with two very integral people to the contest in Liverpool, it's Lee Smithurst and Dan Shipton. So Dan Shipton was lead creative director in Liverpool and Lee Smithurst was head of show. What a fantastic job title. They joined us a few weeks before the contest in Liverpool to give us an idea about what we might expect from the live shows. So as we get ready to start our 2024 season, it seems only right to round things off in 2023 by chatting to these two about everything we saw on stage in the MS Arena. Yeah, it's been about three months, hasn't it, since the contest came to an end back in May. I'm sure loads of you have got loads of special memories to look back on, and uh, Lee and Dan are exactly the same. So Rob sat down with both of them to find out how they look back on the contest in Liverpool. Yeah, make yourself comfy because it's another chunky podcast, but stay where you are or keep listening. But keep, you know, doing what you're doing. But as long as you're listening, you'll be fine. 
because in this we've got all sorts of stuff about what you saw on the stage, some great behind the scenes gossip. We talk about the UK a little bit as well. There's some names that you'll recognise mentioned as well, including Twan van der Neuwehausen, who of course was the head of contest working alongside Lee and Dan. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's look back at Liverpool 2023. Well, Lee and Dan, welcome back once again to the Euro Trip. It's so good to speak to you after all this time. We last caught up a few months before Liverpool, or a few weeks rather before Liverpool. And now here we are, three months after. How are you both doing? You both okay? Really good. It's nice. It feels funny talking to you, knowing that you now know everything and everyone else knows everything. It's funny, isn't it? Because I remember last time we caught up, Lee, you were like, oh, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about, but we can talk about it really vaguely and allude to some things. But like you say, we've now seen it all, so we can get into it all in uh, in this chat. So thank you for coming back on. You're welcome. It's weird, actually. We were just saying to Dan that we haven't, we used to talk about it every day because obviously we'd be talking about what we'd be doing and pitching it to EBU or Ukraine or, you know, people at BBC. And because we haven't spoken about it for ages, it's sort of weird that, we haven't spoken about it probably what with each other for like three months done. I haven't spoken to you at all since then, have I? <laughs> we became work husbands for what a year and then we never spoke again after Messy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dan, the last time I saw you, you won't remember this. It was the morning after and I was walking to Yeah, I do remember that. It was mad. Do you remember? Yeah, outside where I'd been staying and it was like oh my god it all happened I think it was going to see some like BBC News TV thing outside the docks and was very very tired but it was lovely to see you where were you both on Saturday night during the grand final we were together actually so we had a show desk in the arena so usually on a TV show we would we would probably be in the truck but it's quite because it's such a big show and Dan and I were across the, the show elements of it as it were it was better for us to be in the arena with you know the artists that might be going on and the talent that were in there um, and then there were other people in the truck looking at the TV broadcast so in a way me and Dan sort of had the best job we were so lucky to be in there because we experienced all the shows live with the audience so where the boxers were at the top the the you know the VIP box that they sell one of them was made into a little production hub um and I think there were six of us maybe in there Dan there was myself and Dan and Tom who was the other guy who worked with um Dan and I on all the uh, intervals and openings there was Julia our show caller and then Twan who's head of contest and then some of our tech team were up there as well but we would just sit and watch it and be on comms to each other and we'd be able to relay any notes back to the gallery yeah, it's a really special place to sit because A, you got a view of the whole thing. But for us, having created these shows in our heads for so long, to be able to then, during dress rehearsal, see the audience reaction, it was the first time that we got feedback. Um, and obviously, you never get feedback from a TV audience until the reviews come in the next day, which when you're doing a live show is too late anyway. So to see those that kind of like actual reaction in the room and know that we were on something that was going to be good um, was a really like great thing as we built up to the actual live shows. Presumably, at the point at which you are, as you said, you know, sat watching the shows in the arena... There's only so much you can do from that point onwards. Your your job is is fairly done on that specific show once it once it's on air, or are there still things that you can be doing? 
a lot of the hard work is done before. So all that, when we got into the arena and we had our rehearsal week, they were the really busy weeks for us because that's where we're seeing it for the first time on camera. There's lots of changes to be made. Obviously, some of the artists are arriving for the first time to rehearse. So there's lots to do. But you're right, in the in the event week, it's still very busy. Like we don't, you know, someone has to go and get food for us. We don't get time to eat and all those things. But it's calmer because we know what we're doing. We're just finessing at that point. I think also, though, at the end of the day, that is also the, the first time that we get a lot of that headline talent. So we're adding them in. And of course, when you get them on a site, there are things and nuances that do need to change. But that makes it exciting. And that's what, you know, we've planned as much as we can do up to that point. But you know that when Mahmood or when Netta turns up, there is always the risk that things are going to need to adapt. It is so brilliant to have the both of you here to do this retrospective on Eurovision 2023. So thank you so much for, for giving your time and we will go right back but before we do that I do want to ask just another question about watching the shows in the arena what was it like watching that first show with a, an audience with a live audience because you're, you're both obviously in the arena for what two three weeks beforehand doing all the rehearsals what's it like when you actually finally get people in there eyes on the stage for the very first time for me, I think we opened in the most poignant way. Everything that we'd been trying to do for the, the nine months, the opening with Together in Electric Dreams, which I think we said on the last time we spoke to you, we didn't get that song for ages. It took us quite a while to find the song that we really wanted, that said the message that we wanted, that felt like it was uplifting and sweet for the kids, but also was saying the right thing at the right time. So when we had that song, we thought the kids on stage for the first time and they walk through with and they hold hands and the audience cheered that for me was like such a special moment of everything that we'd been doing and you just get that cheer when the kids walk to the the front of the stage was a really lovely moment and though you're miles and miles away i see you every day i don't have to try i just Close my eyes. I close my eyes. I'm a crier, so I cried. Whereas Lee, I don't know if he's ever cried, but <laughs> but um, you know, it, there it was it was truly emotional and I think also then when you came out with a belter from Julia it was just like oh so exciting so yeah it, it did feel amazing and again like you know we all do this job because we want to create a reaction and we want to create an emotional story for an audience so to actually feel that emotion finally after all these secrets for a year it was just incredible. I was in the arena on that Monday night, so the first jury show for the first semi-final. And like you say, that moment, especially the transition between that really touching moment with the kids and then Julia comes out, it, it was an incredible moment and, and one that I'm sure everybody watching it, anyone in the arena, won't forget. We'll talk about the semi-finals and the final in more detail, but let's go back to rehearsals because I remember when we spoke last on the podcast, uh, Lee, I think you were heading up to Liverpool the very next day on the train and then Dan, you, you were going up not long after. How did rehearsals go? Was it fairly serene, seamless? Everything went to plan? 
you know, were you pleased with the groundwork that was laid in those weeks? I think we had a really strong team and we managed to layer everything up really, really nicely. I mean, you always want more rehearsal time. That's good. That's always a given. But actually getting, you know, Lucas, our choreographer in the room in London was just amazing. And at that point, we knew that we were on something really special. Um, and then adding all the different elements and getting the technology in there with the set and seeing that all build up and then starting to see it translate on camera. It all just felt really, really good. There was definitely ones that were tougher than others. You know, we had the same amount of time to rehearse, say, the Liverpool songbook in comparison to some of the other ones. And so you're looking at something which is 12 minutes long in comparison to three minutes long. And probably in retrospect, we probably should have allocated even more time to the full songbook. Not that it, it, you didn't feel that on camera in the end, but it did make the actual rehearsal bits a bit, a little bit more stressful just because there was so much to do in that amount of time. But like the moments when we saw, I don't know, the, the dancer stand in do Cornelia for the first time, I, I it, it just felt like, oh my God, we, we knew we were on something really, really exciting. And then when we see the bird flew for Netta, or we saw all these different things that we just imagined actually coming to life, um, it, was, it was just incredible. There were lots of technical things that we did and you sometimes don't know how they're going to work until you get there. And when we had the discussion with Cornelia about the water, which in fairness wasn't that long before we went to Liverpool, it was a last minute idea. Um, she, she actually mentioned the idea to us and of course, we like a challenge, so then we wanted to make it work. But it's difficult to... That's why they don't have water on stage at Eurovision, because of the clear-up afterwards. But, you know, when you've got a full audience in there, trying to get water in and out is quite quite a big challenge. And obviously, you've got the cameras and the lights. So that was one that we just needed to see on camera and make sure it, it worked, because we didn't actually do a lot of performances on that tiny satellite stage, just... That and go away, I think. I'd be so impressed if if uh, Cornelia managed to get through the whole of Eurovision week without getting hypothermia. Because every time I saw her, she was soaking wet. Like, I went to Euro Club on the Friday night after being at the jury final, and Cornelia performed twice, I think. And she was absolutely soaking wet. Like, she hadn't even bothered to, I think, sort a towel out or anything. So if she managed to get through the whole week without getting a cold, I'd be very impressed. We should probably put a camera on Cornelia because I remember that, that our costume team, who were amazing, headed by um, Tara and Michael, they had to, because obviously Cornelia then joins for the reprise of You'll Never Walk Alone, but she's wet. So I think they're literally toweling her dry as she's running down the corridor to get to the back of the stage to come back on again, because it would be slightly inappropriate if she was completely wet <laughs> coming up. So I think that she might have even had a little quick change and her hair towel down. One of the uh, one of the biggest things that I want to talk to you about in uh, rehearsals is something that you couldn't talk to us about last time, which was how you managed to get Graham from the BBC commentary box onto the stage. So how how was that set up? I know we saw kind of a behind the scenes video on I think it was the BBC Eurovision socials at the time, but was Graham's box and the BBC box in the same place as the others? And he literally had to run the length of the arena to get onto that stage. Yeah, it was. And we got when we first got into the arena, we did uh, one of the crew did a walk from where the back of the stage would be to the route that Graham would have so we could time it, which was helpful because then we could time it in the script. So we knew what song he had to leave and when, what song he'd be back for. I don't I can't remember how long the actual journey took, maybe like three minutes or something from start to finish. But I think he had to walk right through the audience as well, because to get to the comms box, you have to go up the steps. So he did do that route. 
Can we talk about what the days look like, the rehearsal days? Because, you know, people hear Eurovision rehearsals and I guess people who are following along on social, they think, oh, I don't know, they might start 10am, finish back in time for tea. Not quite like that, is it? They start 10 hour days. And they're gone. They started as 10 hour days, but then they increased to 12 hour days. You know, we were trying to be optimistic, I think, at the beginning to see if we could get everything done in 10 hours. But you just can't because naturally things happen. And because we're trying to do the countries at the same time, if there's an issue with one of the country rehearsals and takes 20 minutes longer, then that eats into the time that we would say have allocated in the evening. So you just end up running on. So I think the first week we did 10 hour days and then we went to 12 hour days. But when I say that it's 12 hours in the arena. So for me and Dan, there's still time after that where we then have to look at the next day. So that's 12 hours inside the arena on camera looking at things. You just you just got to be really aware that you're actually on a marathon with that show. There's like, three, you know, it's not just three shows. You're actually looking at well, nine shows in total with all the different dress rehearsals and they're all really important. And you don't want to drive your team into the ground so much that you aren't getting the best work. And there's just it's just a lot of information for every single person in the team to process. So, you know, and you're also working at the top of your game and you want everyone to be producing the best work they can possibly ever do, because that's what Eurovision allows all of us to achieve. So you, it's, it's about it's about giving everyone, setting everyone up to win rather than to fail. And I think that's what, you know, rehearsals are for. But, you know, you don't want to drive everyone into and into an early grave with it. Dan, how were things different for you in terms of kind of being on the other side of things? Because, of course, you've sat in the in the green room and, and behind the scenes as creative director for numerous performances for numerous countries over the years. What's it like being on the other side of it and kind of doing it for the whole show and having that overview over everything? It's, it's completely different. And, um, you know, I'm definitely also excited about hopefully going back next year and doing countries again, because I think, you again, you learn a whole different um, side of it. <clears throat> I think, you know, you're you're looking at the program from a different point of view we're, we're you know we're creating a program we're creating drama we're creating all that 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 kind of like those emotional experiences that we were just talking about so i think we're looking at that kind of bigger picture and we're seeing how all of that pieces together when you're so focused on three minutes of tv for a specific country um and you're focused on you know hopefully doing well or if not trying to win a competition that's a whole completely different level of detail and um, both have their ups, their downs, and both have different stories. Plus also you're working, you know, you're working for um, a country, they have a very specific agenda and you're trying to fit into your three minutes into a broadcast when you're doing a country. Whereas when you're thinking about the global experience of a broadcast, that's obviously going to be completely, completely different. Plus also you're trying to make a, make a program that's going to make, um, well, in our case, two countries and two nations very proud. So again, um, it's very, very different, and and both have, um, you know, I'm so I feel I feel like both Lee and I would say we're just so happy and so lucky to have been able to sit on the kind of pro- program makers side because that's what you dream of. That feels like what your prize is if you win or do well at Eurovision in our case, um, uh, and it's it is genuinely what we all dream of. But it's also I think now we've done it, I can't wait to go back and apply all the things that we've learned into uh, countries and, and seeing how we can, you know, better ourselves in a competition. 
that was going to be my next question. Has it changed the way in which you think that you will kind of look at things in those roles going forward? Obviously, Lee, you know, previously assistant head of delegation for, for the BBC in the UK and, and Dan, you know, you as creative director for, for many different countries down the years. Has it changed how you will look at things going forward? Definitely for me, like you have an insight. When I would go for the UK team, you pitch your idea of what you want to do and you do the speed dates. But this year I was in all the speed dates. So when the countries come over in March and they all pitch their ideas of what they want to do, I've always wondered like how much detail do other countries go in? How prepped are they at the stage of March when I always think March is quite a difficult time because you've you've generally only just selected your act and the EBU ask for everything, your stage plots, what you're going to do, costumes even sometimes, and you've not really got that far at that moment. So it was good to see the levels of where people are. So I always think, okay, we were always on the right, but we were never like, you know, too behind or too far, too far ahead. But it is interesting to see what people want to do and the level of detail that, that people bring. Um, but I think we're always quite organised anyway on our side. Um, but it is interesting to see all the different countries and how they, how they, want, how they tell you what they want to realise on stage. I agree. And I think uh, echoing everything that Lee said, but then also thinking about, you know, just show week. When you arrive on site, you've been building up your artists and your kind of ideas to a certain point. And you kind of, again, because you're focused on three minutes of TV for that particular country, you do want, you do feel like everything is, is all about that. But actually seeing the bigger picture, realising what everyone is trying to achieve um, it makes you realise that actually when um, a host broadcaster is saying no or they're, they're, they're having challenges on their side, it's not personal and it's not, um, you know, for any other reason than actually they've just got a bigger picture to be dealing with. Um, and I think obviously it's interesting because with Eurovision, there are no genuine, there's no guidebook or no handbook that gets handed out by the EBU. So yes, people do find a formula and we, you know, it kind of gets copied and pasted across the countries, but there are variations. So whilst we as the BBC did it in a certain way, obviously, you know, Sweden might do it differently that next year and there'll be other countries that do it differently in the future. So you're always having to chop and change as well and react to different personalities. Because I think the personalities definitely within a team of a host broadcaster can also make um, uh, your the way that your ideas are received from a from a specific country's point of view also um, be different. So I think there's a lot there's lots of things at, at stake to play within that. But I think it's definitely definitely um, helped me hone even more of the process going forward. Were the things that you did have to say no to, you know, naturally are the delegations and countries going to you and saying, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? And and, and there are things that you are like, actually, whether it be because of the dimensions of the arena or, or, or things like that, you know, are the things that you do have to say, unfortunately, we can't do that. Yeah, it, it comes down to the size and be, being able to get them on in time. So Nikki, who would look after all our stage stuff, would would advise, you know, this is too big. We, we don't have enough men to bring it on and off in time. A lot of the time it comes down to cost. Um, and especially for the delegations this year, for us, we've never really thought about this because wherever we have a prop, we have to ship it because we're an island. But obviously for the other countries coming here, all of them had to be shipped because that's not something they're used to because usually in Europe, they just go on a truck somewhere. So the cost of shipping stuff was much higher and then also you would have to get it built in this country if you wanted your props. So sometimes props just fall away because they are way more than you can afford. 
Were there any super challenging props that did make it onto stage? I'm thinking of the the bigger things that we saw. For example, you know, Australia Voyager, they had a car on stage. And obviously, you know, the one that you have to mention here is is Lorene and and the sandwich press or whatever you want to call it for Sweden. You know, were they genuinely challenging to kind of make those things happen? There was a lot of discourse, of course, online about what was happening with with Sweden and with Lorene and, and whether they would be able to replicate the the Melody Festival and performance on stage in Liverpool. Yeah, and for, for Sweden, they always knew that they had to make a smaller prop if they were going to come to Liverpool. They would just they had to spend a few weeks finding the right dimensions of what would work and still look aesthetically pleasing for them. It's not really our place to say what their prop should be. That's up to them to fit into the parameters that they're, they're given. So that all comes from them. So the Swedish one, once they'd actually got what they needed and the materials to make it, then that one was fine. The trickier ones were things like Armenia, um, just because, can you remember, Dan, at the beginning, it just never really looked right on camera of how it joined up. And there's things that you can't really see until you see it on on camera so Germany was huge as well Germany was a huge prop so a lot of the time it just takes time for them it's one of those like Armenia especially it takes time to be able to get it on in the 50 second changeover were there any props that did make it to stage but then didn't make it to stage if you know what I mean did they make it for sort of first rehearsals or stand-in rehearsals and then the delegations maybe went actually maybe that's not right there was a giant pair of lips on stage for one of the performances that we never used because the country wanted the lips to be in one piece, but they were ju- they were huge. Did you, I don't know if you ever saw them, Dan, but um, they were just an impossible make and a cost that just wouldn't, you know, have been affordable to most delegations. That's all right. We'll uh, we'll let everybody everybody go rogue now and they can try and work out which country it was. That's fun. So thank you for dangling that one. One of the biggest news stories of the week, I remember this in the press centre, it it didn't happen long after I got there because I got there on the Monday and I think this was potentially rehearsed for the first time on that Monday, was the reveal of the semi-final qualifiers. Of course, you were trying something out a little bit different in Liverpool with all of the potential qualifiers, all of the contestants on stage, and then they were announced as going through. What happened with that from kind of your side of things as as the show team and as the BBC? You know, was that your idea? Is that a reference group idea? Who doesn't want it to happen? How does it then not happen? What happened, basically, is my very long question. Me and Dan always laugh about this because it became such a big thing that we never even really thought it was going to be such a big thing like in any telly show like you want in a dress rehearsal you want to try something out that might be a new idea that god the amount of shows I've done where you've tried something out in a rehearsal and it's never made it on air so many of them but obviously no one finds out about them because they're closed sets but Eurovision is different because you have if the fans and press being able to watch the very first one even if there's no audience in so when we first started this process we'd spoken to EBU in the reference group about Things that, like they do every year, things that could be tweaked in the show. Is there anything that we can finesse? Is there anywhere we can get time out? And we looked at all those different areas that they'd asked us to look at. And we sat down with Nikki, our director. And one of the things that we thought that we might be able to do something slightly different on was the results in the semifinals. And the reason that we tried to do something different then, we'd spoken to EBU and reference group, and they all agreed that we should try it and see if it worked. There were couple of reasons. One, because if you think about, if you were coming to this from the beginning and you'd never seen any other Eurovision before, 
I don't think you would probably stage it in the green room because naturally as a TV producer, all your cameras are facing the other way onto your stage, which you've spent a lot of money on. That's where, you know, we've got the graphics on there. We've got the lighting. You've got at least 20 cameras pointing that way. If you shoot it in the green room, you've got three steady cameras and trying to cover on wides on your jib. So you don't really have as much coverage. So the first reason was, okay, let's try and put it on stage because we can get a clean shot of every single artist. So you can have them all ISO'd in the gallery. So we have a shot of every artist so you can cut to them at any time rather than in a green room where you have steady cameras just running to the person that's in. So we would have every artist. We also wanted to, because Eurovision isn't like a, a Strictly or an X Factor say where you get to know the contestants over time, you never really feel like you get to know the other contestants too much outside of their performance. So we built in a little chat with Alicia backstage. So the artists would go off stage and go to an area that we dressed backstage and Alicia would chat to the first five and then the next five that would qualify, which we thought was, okay, this is a nice way of finding out about them. And then the third reason really was when we've been there before and I was sat in the green room with Sam when we were there for the semifinals in Turin. And when the artists don't qualify, naturally they're upset and the younger ones can be really visibly upset or in tears and... It's always apparent that you just want to get them out because they're being filmed by the audience and the camera phones are on them. So we thought, how can we actually make it so those non-qualifying artists can just immediately sort of exit? So we thought by putting them on the stage, once the qualifiers are through, you can strike, you know, the five or six non-qualifiers immediately. So they're immediately backstage and then they're with their delegation and they can, they're away from pie and ice. So if they do get upset, that's a private moment for them. So that was what we intended to do. But I think really we just saw it on camera on the Monday and it, it didn't work for various different reasons. I think we did miss the artists being with their delegation in the green room just for that joint all get together. That yeah. was one of the main ones. But also it wasn't as quick as we thought it would be because you've got your artists on stage. They've got to walk off to join Alicia. It felt quite laborious. So when we all looked at it, I think pretty much even in the after we'd done like two or three qualifiers, we were talking to the gallery and we were all on the same page. Me and Dan were together in the, our little box. Yeah, we were. This just feels like so slow. It feels like it's lost some of its magic. And then the gallery agreed as well. But then we just played out the whole sequence. And then in between the shows, we just reverted it back to the old time. But... Um, it didn't really change because of any pressure or any of those things. It was pretty much a decision we were making as it was going. Like you do on everything, like me and Dan will talk on our intervals and go, oh, that bit doesn't work. Should we should we change it? So I was surprised that it became such a big, a big thing because it was just something that we wanted to see on camera. And we were excited to try it because like with every show, it's something new that we were excited to look at, but it didn't work. And then we just reverted back. But unfortunately, I think these things can get just sort of blown out of proportion. If we would have just had a closed rehearsal, no one would ever really have known that we tried it. And then you would have just seen the evening rehearsal as normal, but good and bad that I think, I do think it's good for, for everyone to be able to watch rehearsals because you want people to start talking about it, but equally bad because as a production, you don't get the luxury of testing something out. And you've got to remember that for for all of us, for our intervals and all the countries that are performing, you only ever rehearse them in isolation. So on that Monday when we rehearse semi-final one, we've never seen that show put together with presenters linking into items, with items coming on, into intervals, into voting. We've never had the luxury of doing that. We never see it all as one. So to see it with a commentating crowd is difficult because obviously we see things that we want to fix in those 
shows as well because it's the first time we've seen them so um yeah that's that's the uh, the voting sequence we were really excited to try it like you are for anything that's new but equally we know when something isn't working to go this isn't working let's let's revert it back to how it was but um i thought it might have worked did you dan yeah i i i think you know again it's i would rather be in a situation where we try it and and then be bold enough to make the change than to just go oh let's just do it the way every other country always did it and then you know we might have found something magical and you know if you think about how the old voting sequence used to work in comparison to the new voting sequences if if you know if krista and everyone had never tried making that change we wouldn't have this amazing exciting system so you know here we are you've got to be bold enough to at least try Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There are so many things we still have to get to, so I'm going to be try and be as quick for it as possible with all of this. Let's take the semi-finals first. We'll talk about the grand final in a moment, but let's t- take the semi-finals first. I want you both to pick your favourite moment from those shows from this from the semi-finals first of all. Lee, I don't know if you want to go first. Uh, wow, my favourite moment from the semi-finals. Um, Peppa Pig. <laughs> Peppa Pig. Doing the conga, without doubt. Of everything we achieved, that was the greatest thing we did. Um, probably the Freckle Sky, Rebecca Ferguson and Alyosha performance, just because I know how much work we put into that and we'd been talking about it for months and months and to see the reaction to it and feeling it in the arena, that was probably a really special moment and I do think we created something really great and I know that people have talked about should it have been in the grand final and I would have loved to put it there as well if we could but I do think it was an important thing to say right at the top in the very first show rather than wait for the Saturday that one definitely um but then there was also you know there was one that surprised me the choreography for Rita Ora felt really special and the way that the crowd reacted was really amazing to that again putting um that much drag on the world stage and kind of really you know sharing an important message there I I really I I really enjoyed that and again just thinking about ripples of effects that you can make around the world from what you're doing with your art I think that was um, you know, a nice thing to do. 
Um, and again, obviously, that for opening of semi-final one, just because it was the opening of semi-final one, and we were there finally after all that all that planning, felt special. Well, let's move on then. Let's move on to the the grand final. Before we talk about the the show itself, in terms of what we saw on the stage, uh, can we talk about some of the cameos we had in the opening? I think we had who did we have? The, the Princess of Wales, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Joss Stone, Miss Banks, just to name a, a few. How did they all come about? <laughs> they were all just people that we wanted really recognisable British faces, and also that would work with the so- for Kalusha's song. We tried to make it so you would get sort of the the ballet and the violins and different kinds of um, different kinds of art, not just music. So they were where they came from, and obviously we were quite lucky for the BBC. They're in a they were in a year of the coronation, so there's a lot of chat anyway with the royals. So um, not that it was easy to get them on board, but we were doing quite a lot of things with them as a as a company. So the approaches were easier to make to the King and Queen and Princess of Wales. I remember when we were chatting before you both headed up to Liverpool, you said one of the things you were most looking forward to was the flag parade and the incredible mix of songs that we had, you know, UK classics, Ukrainian Eurovision hits. Was it everything that you hoped it would be? I know the answer is going to be yes, but I mean, just humour me anyway. I, it really was. It was. The first thing that I wanted to watch back, because I think we needed a little bit of distance probably when we got home, but the first thing weirdly I wanted to watch of everything that we did was the flag parade. Um, I don't know why. It just I think it's the flag parade I enjoy anyway in a normal Eurovision, even if we're not making it. So Because it's just that euphoric moment, top of the show, all the artists come out, and it just felt like the most amazing moment because the crowd at the top of the show are really sort of, even though you know a Eurovision crowd can sustain the four hours, but right at the top of the show is where the excitement is at the, you know, its highest. So you get the crowd reaction and obviously because we had live performances within that and the music and actually across the board, the, the trickiest thing about this entire Eurovision was music. And I don't know if you probably noticed or paid attention to it, but compared to other Eurovisions, it had more commercial music than any other Eurovision because it's easy to get someone to compose music that you then own the rights for. But we had quite a lot of commercial songs, whether that was in the drag song or, you know, the Rebecca and Alyosha performance or all the flag parade. And it's one costly and time consuming to clear that many songs for what the EBU need because you need worldwide clearance in perpetuity. Like it's quite hard for artists just to sign away, you know, the rights to their song for performance that will live forever and ever. Um, so that was quite tricky just to get all the songs that we wanted. But um, that's why I think the flag parade was amazing to get all actually all the songs that we wanted right from the beginning. We would get like weekly um, emails from Rosie, who was on our team, our assistant producer, who would largely focus on music clearance. And every every week you would get a, this is cleared, this is cleared. It would just be like a joyous moment of thank you. Because if not, we would have to change quite a lot of creatives a lot of the time if we couldn't get the songs we wanted. Well, it was also these are the ones that will never be cleared, and therefore you were like, "Oh God, let's move on to the next idea." Yeah, no, I think we can probably guess which songs they they may have been. Definitely, in terms of actually, this is just a question that's just come to mind now. In terms of the running order, do you guys get to influence the running order in your roles, or is that more a, a twan um, thing? So what we did on the evenings of uh, um, Yes is the Answer, so it was myself, Twan, Andrew Cartmel and Martin Ersterdal. So in the in the, in the the previous one, so when you're doing the semi-finals in March, then we have a whole team together to look at the running order because you've got the time and the luxury of all your stage team as well to look at all the props. But then in the ones that are after the semi-finals, it's a very quick meeting where we would go up to 
Martin's office in the Liverpool arena. And the four of us would just look at the, the running order. And it's as you'd expect. You have to look at the show and how you want to start your show and, you know, make sure you've got the right flow. But it is dictated a lot as well by the props and getting things on and off stage and what's going to make for... Because no one wants a show that stops starting all the time because you just don't want that. You want it to flow as 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 best as possible. So largely the props will dictate where things can go or which ones can't go next to each other. In terms of what we then eventually saw on that stage, let's talk about what we've already done for the semi-finals. Your favourite moments individually for, for the grand final? Uh, I mean, I think I'm, I'm in all of it, really. But um, we said Flag Parade. Um, Liverpool's songbook felt really, really special just because we know... We knew all of the artists that were coming back and we knew the little surprises that they all had. And like, you know, and Dowie doing Atomic Kitten was just like, you know, a moment. The bird, the water, everything. It was just it was just a gift that kept giving that one and it felt really, really special. So I, I you know, for me that one, seeing Ukraine back, seeing Sam back, the emotional connection with all of the people that joined Sam on stage, Roger Taylor on drums, my God, there was just it was just so much. We uh, we spoke to Netta in the week, uh, so this is obviously before the grand final. And Lee, was it a conversation that you and Netta had? Was it in Amsterdam or someone on the BBC team? Was it yourself? It was me. So I went to I went to the concert in Amsterdam in November um, to speak to Netta about would she want to do it. So she was on uh, mine and Dan's hit list of who we wanted to do. Uh, you spin me round, and we were open to her doing another song if she wanted, but. Um, I went to see in a dressing room and I, I'd met her before with her manager because they, when we did uh, a You Decide, she came over to, to Salford. So I had met her very briefly before. Um, but yeah, just sat down with her and said, we're making this Eurovision this year. We'd love you to come back. We're inviting artists back from previous years to sing famous songs from Liverpool. And she, she pretty much said yes straight away and to the song, which was great. And then we jumped on a call with her and and we were like, oh, we want you to fly in on a bird. And also, what about wearing an inflatable costume? And it, it just went from there and she never said no. I was about to say, surely that was the quickest yes and yes you got in the whole thing, I'd assume. Yeah, she was a perfect, all of them were actually, but Nessa's so engaged in what every single element of what she will look like, what it will sound like. So from the from the production of the song, which they did all the production of the song themselves and to the costume, to the even the aesthetic of the bird, it was all from, you know, what Netta had in her mind of what she wanted it to, to look like. So it was great. In fact, all those collabs on the Liverpool songbook were so interesting for us because you're working with six different artists and getting all different sort of creative responses to what you're doing, which made it better in a way. It would be boring if me and Dan just said, this is what we're doing. Do you want to say yes to it? That's not a way to work. It's to get their ideas too, because we probably never would have done the water with Cornelia unless she would have mentioned it to us about doing that. And what about you, Lee? What was your, what was your favourite thing? You can say all of it. Um, I think the same as Dan, like the flag parade and the Liverpool songbook, but mainly just because they're probably closer to mine and Dan's heart because we spent so much time making sure that they were 
perfect or at least as perfect as, as we could make them so when you see them come to life and they they look exactly like you want them to look you know you you can't help but not feel that they are your favorite moments from the show there were so many lovely little bits that kind of you know in focus don't don't feel like a, a huge thing but actually now thinking about it you know for example when Lorene wins the walk backstage I thought was a lovely touch you know seeing her with also the, like the BBC crew and the volunteers and her returning to the stage it was a really really lovely moment after the show finishes it's what time is it like half midnight or something like that when the show finishes what do you do how do you come down from you know months and months and months and months and months of, of work we went out and drank a lot of booze didn't we Dan? I thought that might be the answer yeah we did but also you actually um I didn't I, I actually just took myself away and um, we were in the office and I was just like I'm not even going to say goodbye to anyone because ultimately how do you even start you know you can't so didn't do that we went to um the tap party met up with our friends and then ended up Ryan and Scott were DJing Netta um uh Conchita was there all of the gang it was just a bit of a kind of you know party seeing you know May and and she sang her song and it felt really brilliant and it just it was a it was a nice way to celebrate but um yeah I just made sure I didn't drink too much because I didn't want to hang over and also to be emotionally kind of bereft after a year of such an exciting time. People who are listening to this episode who listened to your previous appearance on the podcast will be desperate to know whether you were both back on the rosé. <laughs> Always. And a little gin and tonic. We'll drink anything though. It doesn't really matter. You, you mentioned you were, you were, of course, at the tap party. You two being heavily involved in, in what the BBC have done previously and what the UK have done previously, how was it for you kind of doing that from the outs this year you know not being not being involved in a project or a team that you normally would be part of that was actually the hardest thing that was the hardest thing to not be involved in our own uh entry this year definitely for me I don't know about you Dan it was because ultimately you know you're um you're so invested a in your own country but also in um, a journey that you've helped kind of the trajectory of so you know that um, you, you care you know so yeah of course. I didn't really think about it to be honest though because we had been so busy up to that point that it wasn't like I was ever thinking oh I wish I was doing you know the UK you don't really think that until the UK team arrive on site in Liverpool and it's a weird feeling of like a new team coming in and you go oh that's what we usually do me and Dan and that was a weird moment where we were like okay we're not part of that this year so that was um it was just it wasn't a horrible feeling it was just strange to then it's the realization moment that okay they're a different team now and we're on the other side was there the odd the odd text here and there that kind of thing the odd whatsapp or or I suppose you know you'd want to just leave them to it because you two are both very much doing what you're doing yeah and you don't want to get involved in someone else's thing of course in the in the early days we were there for advice because you know, it was an it was a new team who hadn't done it on the BBC studio side. So of course you're gonna help them and say this is what you need to do and all those things, but you don't want to be that person that's hovering over going, I would do this, I would do that. No one wants that, do they? We just said it to each other, we didn't say it to anyone else. <laughs> that's all we did. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> and and then looking forward to to Malmo into twenty twenty four, have the SVT team 
come to you guys for for any kind of advice or or have you been talking to SVT about what they might be planning on doing? I remember having a, a conversation with Seat Sabaka, who of course was he's on the reference group, the exec producer of 2020, 2021. And he was saying that that I think he had a bit of a chat with you in the very early stages. So have you kind of passed the baton on and, and done the same thing with Malmo and Sweden? Yeah, Sitsa was really helpful actually in the beginning when me and Andrew saw him because he just gave us all the pitfalls of don't spend time doing this or, you know, this is where you should spend your energy and your time. Because at the beginning, when it's sort of July, even though we were behind, you still feel like you've got the luxury of time. And then you think, why did we spend all this time talking about X, Y, Z? Because you realise from January, every decision has to be made in like two hours. You don't have the luxury of, oh, let's think about this for a week. Um, But uh, I think SVT, they were out actually in... Liverpool so they came out anyway the team you know like with Lorene there was a chance that she was going to win so obviously their top team that they thought might make it would come out and look at the setup so they were able to ask a lot of the questions at the time but also Tobias who is probably one of the best and most knowledgeable and nicest guys in the world joined our team as a consultant and he's been doing Eurovision for about 20 years in various different roles he's one of the head on shows now of the Malmo um Eurovisions, which I'm really pleased about because he was invaluable to us. I mean, he did everything from like came to do all the arena visits to the spec to when you get in and all the little issues you might have with the set. Like he was, he was brilliant. So he's part of their team. So they don't, he's got the knowledge anyway. So they, they've got the best man for the job. It's very exciting looking ahead to 2024, everything we've got in store. And uh, I'm sure hopefully we'll get the chance to, to catch up again in the, in the future. Dan and Lee, it's been a joy. And thank you for taking us on the Eurovision 2023 journey with you, because I know everyone listening to this is so grateful for the time that you've given for, you know, chatting here on on the Euro trip. And it's brilliant every time we have you on. So thank you so much for for being here. Pleasure. It's so nice to look back. And I think you realise that, um, you know, what a special time we had. And we never want to forget that you know, and hopefully it won't be too far in distance when we bring it back home again and we get to do it again. Obviously, at the time, it, we were so wrapped up in Eurovision, but because we've sort of had a bit of distance from it now, it's actually nice to relive it all and talk about it again with a bit of hindsight, because when you're in it and you achieve it, yes, it's great when you're in the arena and you watch it all come together, but so many things are happening at the same time that you can't appreciate one little thing. So it's only now reliving it when you can actually look back at all those little things and go, God, those things really did look like we wanted them to look. And there's no better feeling as a producer than when you've got something in your head and what actually comes out on screen is the same or better than what you imagined. Well, the pair of you and the rest of the team and the rest of the team at the BBC, you all did the UK so proud as as the host. So thank you. And uh, I'm sure, as I said, it won't be long until we get you back on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Eurotrip, the world's favourite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So there we go then, Rob's chat with Lee and Dan. So, so good to get that level of insight. Let us know all of your thoughts on the chat you've just heard. You can get in touch with us uh, online. We are at Eurotrip Podcast on, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can see uh, some of the, the videos as well over on TikTok as well. Uh, Rob, that was such a great chat. It was so nice to catch up with them. It always is. We've said already, you know, they had such key jobs in 2023. Lee as head of show, Dan as lead creative director on the whole contest. 
to hear some of those stories, you know, stuff like what was happening behind the scenes, some of the props that delegations wanted to use and didn't end up using, like that big pair of lips. Like, who was that for? Who is that? Have you got any thought? Are you going to throw any of your ideas around? I, I like to think that they were um, just going to go completely rogue and stick them on top of Lorene's like, sandwich press or something. That would have been fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, I don't know. Germany, maybe? Like, Lord of the Lost, they were in some, like, red latex stuff, weren't they? So, could be them. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? You've probably got your thoughts at home as well. You've probably got some ideas. I bet you somebody has got a perfect theory as well. They've got it down to the nth detail. Let us know if you've got your theory on who that might have been. Uh, And also really good to get uh, Lee's thoughts particularly on the semi-finalists, the the sequence where they announced the qualifiers for the grand final, because we know that story uh, came from us here on the podcast when you spoke to them last back in April, and it became a huge story. Uh, they gave it a go in the in the rehearsals and then they decided to scrap it. But we hadn't actually heard from Lee or anybody really on the production team apart from when you caught up with Martin Ustadar uh, in, in Liverpool to find out exactly how that process went about. Yeah, really interesting. And also, nice to hear from them about how they're going to take their experience from Liverpool into whatever they do next working on the contest. We don't know for sure that these two will be involved in Eurovision in 2024. Hopefully they will be. I know that you will have wanted us to ask them more about 2024. There are reasons why we can't. But hopefully it gives you a little bit of optimism with their answers there. That, you know, there are loads of things they've learned and they're only going to help when it comes to how they work on future contests. Yes, exactly. A uh, great insight, nonetheless, from uh, from Lee and Dan's experience uh, in Liverpool Arena, probably where they spent most of their time for about four weeks solid, <laughs> or whatever it was. But yeah, really, really good to hear from them. And like you said, hopefully, if they are involved in some way, shape or form with the BBC in the future, hopefully we'll be able to bring you their insights going forwards in the future as well. Don't forget, as James has already said, let us know what you thought of everything you've just heard at Eurotrip Podcast, Twitter, Instagram. We're on TikTok as well. And we're on Threads. You can find us there too. And for all of the exclusive stories from the chat, eurotrippodcast.com. Go and read them over there. And James, we will be back on Wednesday next week as we start something old, but something new. Hopefully that makes sense. Yes, it does. And if you stick around just now, we've got a little bit of a tease of what's to come over the next few weeks. So stay there, and we'll see you soon. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. So hello, everyone, and... We're back. I am Rob. He is James. Hello. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Great to be back. Is this officially back? We were here last week and we said this wasn't an official comeback. Is this the official comeback for 2024? No, this isn't the official comeback. No, it's not the official comeback. This is the official notice that we will be back very, very soon. That's what this is. Right, okay. Now that we've got that housekeeping out of the way, shall we get on with it? Yeah, we probably should. We are here to tell you that The Contest and Me returns again in 2023. And we will be back with brand new episodes from next Wednesday. James, people are listening to this. They might not know what The Contest and Me is. What is it? 
Well, it's back for a third run, a third summer, a third series. It's where we get to sit down and chat to some of the most well-loved personalities in the world of Eurovision, all about their love for the world's biggest music competition. So to give you a taster of what you might be expecting, here's some of the people we've spoken to in the past. There are so many moments that, that kind of connect the dots in a way. Coming out and coming out as a Eurovision fan have kind of gone hand in hand. Seeing the country you come from win a thing. I think whether or not you're into that sport or that competition, it's it's still a great feeling. SVT had an after party where uh, Christa Bjorkman was thrown in the swimming pool and <laughs> I, uh, I interviewed him in the swimming pool and he pulled me down with him into the water. That was very memorable. Daz was special. Daz was really special. Um, he was a lovely guy. He was really enthusiastic about representing his country. He literally showed up for the interview um, on the rooftop at, by the swimming pool in Athens in his bathrobe. I have a memory of meeting Mickey Joe Hart and his green guitar in 2003. I still have a photo to prove this actually. It was mania at the time and I remember um, it was such a big deal. And I think for me, that was kind of getting bitten by the bug and I was like, wow, I'd love to have something to do with Eurovision someday. Great to hear there from some of the names we spoke to uh, last summer. That includes Steve Holden, uh, Jenny Ryan, Toby Eck, uh, Dave Goodman and Louise Candelon. And... Here's a little tease of someone who will be joining us on the contest of me later on this year. One just like, let's just let's just go back to my hotel and we'll just record it in my bed. <laughs> it's like, what? We all pile into Mo- Mons's hotel room and we record sort of in bed with Mons. <laughs> it's like, this this is the strangest thing that I've ever done. I'm in bed with a former Eurovision winner. So it all kicks off on Wednesday. We'll see you then. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.